Good morning. My name is Jim. I am the lead pastor here at Journey, and I am thrilled that you're with us this morning. We are in part three of a series we're calling Guardrails. Um, I'm going to start off with a little story, and you'll kind of see how it ties in in a minute. A few years ago, uh, before any of my kids were born, my wife and I went to Disney World. Some of you have been to Disney? You got any Disney fans here? Yeah. Wow. You guys, you need some fun in your life. Come on, winter's over, summer's around the corner, it's feeling good. Some of you need to take a trip to Disney this year. It'll pay off. Uh, we went to Disney, and we went to Animal Kingdom, and we took the, the wild safari ride. And if you've ever kind of been on anything like that, you, you, you're familiar with the story. You get in, and your tour guide, he's kind of sitting in the front seat. He's like, now listen, when you're on the ride, I want all your hands to be in the vehicles. Keep your feet in the vehicles. And, and if you're anything like me, I don't know if it's a little bit of the rebellion or rebel in me, but I just kind of feel like, seriously, man, I'm an adult. Like, if I want to put my hand out of the vehicle, I'm putting my hand out of the vehicle. I'm a grown-up. I got a license. I graduated from college. I know what I'm doing. And we're on this tour ride, and about halfway through, through the, the, the tour, I mean, I've been on other tour rides, and the animals are, like, in the distance. You know what I'm talking about? Like, 20, 30 yards in the distance. A herd of, of rhinos. You know what a rhino is? They have, that, like, that big horn in the front. They're, like, bumping up against our vehicle. And my wife's in front of me, and she's next to the door, and the doors are kind of open. And it's, like, rubbing its head against there. <clears throat> and I just had this horrible thought, like, there is a reason to keep your hand in the vehicle. There's a reason to keep your feet in the vehicle, and that's it right there. Today, I'm going to be a little bit of a tour guide. We're talking about guardrails, and everyone kind of knows what a guardrail is, but in the context that we're talking about it, a guardrail is simply this. It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. We kind of know that. We understand that. It's a good thing. We like guardrails because they keep us from getting too hurt. But as, as we said, guardrails kind of do two things. And the first thing they do is they direct and protect us. You're not driving through a guardrail. It's kind of guiding you through the traffic. Another thing that guardrail, guardrails do is guardrails are always placed in the safety zone, right? They're never placed in the danger zone. They're always keeping us from the danger. So they're just a few feet, a few inches into the safety zone. And no one argues with that logic, especially if you're on a bridge or a dangerous turn. You know, you want a guardrail in the safety zone to keep you from minimizing or from maximizing your damage. And that's the next thing they do. A guardrail is designed to help you minimize your damage. You might wreck your car. Your car might die, but you won't. And we're okay with that, aren't we? Like, if something's going to go, I'd rather replace my car than myself. That's what a guardrail does. You might total your car, you might wreck it, you might suffer a lot of damage, but at least you're going to walk away from the accident. This is what a guardrail is. And the reason we're kind of talking about guardrails uh, throughout uh, this series is, as we've discovered, highways aren't the only place we need guardrails, are they? Highways, byways, roadways, it's not the only place we need a guardrail. That, that if we were really to kind of answer the question, like, what's your greatest regret? If you were to kind of answer that question internally, and I'm not going to ask you to shout out because it might embarrass a lot of you, but if we were to answer that question, what is our greatest regret? My, my guess would be that if we had some guardrails set up in our lives, maybe financially, maybe professionally, maybe relationally, maybe morally, that if we had set up some guardrails, we could have avoided our greatest regrets in life. So this is what we want to do, looking at our future, looking at what's ahead of us, what's ahead for your children, what's ahead for your teenagers. We, we think that if you could take the time to put some guardrails in place for you, it could keep you from experiencing any other great regrets. Keep your children from experiencing any other great regrets where they would come to a point in their life and say, man, if I just had a guardrail, I could have avoided that great regret. You see, a guardrail is this. It's a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. 
It's a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. That, that, that you know, we don't put like physical guardrails up, like I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to. It's a matter of conscience. And it's something I decide for me. I don't decide a guardrail for you. You decide the guardrail for you. But I get to decide. And what it does is, as I get close, as my behavior kind of leads me close to bumping up against that guardrail, something kind of goes off in my head. It's almost like my conscience kind of lights up and says, you haven't hit yet. You haven't had the wreck. You haven't totaled your car, but you're getting a little close. Have you ever seen a car bump up against a guardrail? They just kind of bump and they pull back. Sometimes it's a little more severe. That's what we want with, with this whole idea, that you kind of bump up against a guardrail to keep you from making a wreck of your life, from making a wreck of your marriage, from making maybe a wreck of your finances or your career, something that would keep you from having maximum damage. A guardrail, the purpose of the guardrail is to make you feel uneasy, and really is to make you feel uneasy early, to help you avoid that pitfall, to help you avoid that dangerous curve, to help you avoid going off the bridge whatever that struggle might be, whatever that thing might be in your life that you're kind of prone towards, that you kind of drive towards more often than you'd like to admit. The hope is that the guardrail would kind of go off in your mind and make you feel uneasy just a little early. Now, last week, Brian spoke to us, and he spoke to us about friends and associates. This week, I get to speak to you about friends with benefits. It always takes a minute to kick in. <laughs> yeah, I get the fun one this week. So Brian, you can thank me for that later. Uh, this morning, we're going to speak about having a guardrail for your marriage, or, or maybe your future marriage, maybe to protect you for your marriage, or maybe even this, maybe to protect you from somebody else's marriage. We want to help you set up a guardrail to help define and protect what could be and what should be the most important relationship in your life. And as we get into this discussion, and we begin to talk about guarding your marriage and how to safeguard and how to set up these kind of guardrails, we're really going to fall on one word that kind of captures the whole idea. And it's a word we don't use too often, uh, but, but it's a word uh, called fidelity. Fidelity. And, and it's a little Greek word that actually means this, faithful or loyal. Or Sorry, it's a Latin. It comes from a Latin word. That means faithful or loyal. Bet you didn't know you could speak Greek that easy, could you? So what I want to talk to you about is how to remain faithful and loyal to your marriage in a culture that would try to convince you to do otherwise. So today I'm going to be your tour guide. I want you to keep your hands in the boat, keep your feet in the vehicle, <clears throat> and keep your eyes on the screen. Now, nowhere in our culture, and you know this, nowhere in our culture is there any kind of, of great reminder to be faithful and loyal in your marriage right? I mean, when you kind of take a step back and you look at all that culture offers us and all that culture kind of celebrates and all that culture maybe even entices you to too and, and maybe really encourages you to step really, really close to that edge, to that, to that barrier, to kind of right up against your guardrail. There's no place probably in all of our life where we're more enticed to step over that line than when it comes to fidelity, than when it comes to being faithful, than when it comes to being loyal. So much of our, cult, of our culture just encourages us to kind of step over, to give in to your feelings, to, to be a little promiscuous, to, to, to cross that line a little bit. But here's the interesting thing. As much as they try to bait you to step over that line, they're the first one to chastise you and condemn you when you do. They're the first one to kind of set you out to, to dry and talk about how awful you are and you're such a pig and you're so gross. But, but often they just entice you to keep going and keep going. And no other area do we see this more than when it comes to your marriage. And that's why I think this is in incredibly, incredibly important to talk about. Because if you're married, this can save your marriage. 
And if you're not married, this will help you save your future marriage. If you're single and one day you hope to be married, this is what you need to learn to apply now to protect your marriage, to safeguard it, to make sure you don't end up like so many other people, like so many other statistics. Because you will be baited. Culture, magazines, movies, almost all of our entertainment baits us to cross that line. And when we do, this is kind of our response. You hear this often. Well, you know, boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. We just kind of excuse it away. (coughs) Excuse me. We just kind of excuse our behavior away as boys will be boys. I like what Anna Voskamp says about this. And it's, it's a little heavy. It's a little cutting. But I think it's extremely important. She says, when boys will be boys, girls will be garbage. When boys will be boys, girls will be garbage. And on one hand, it's funny because we all think, well, boys will be boys. They're rascals. It's what they do. We were were made that way. But when we realize what that does to someone else, to the things we mistreat, to the things we hurt, it's not that funny anymore. And this kind of takes on a whole new light, maybe a whole new context, maybe a whole new level of seriousness. That's why in this one particular area, we need to learn how to tighten down. This one particular area, we need to learn to not do what culture baits us to do. We need to learn to set up a guardrail to protect our marriage and our relationship and our future so that we don't drive off the edge, so that we don't become a statistic and we don't become an accident. You see, and and we know when when we do kind of cross that line, we know what the consequences are, don't we? we? We know what kind of comes from this. But I, I, want you, I want you to just ask yourself a question, and maybe you can help me answer this. <clears throat> what, would, what would it look like? We'll just play the big what-if game, if we got this right. What would it look like if our whole church got this right? What would it look like, and we're, we're going to get bigger, what if it looked like if our city got this right, or our state got this right, or our nation got this right? This would change everything. It would change everything. There wouldn't be kids needing foster homes. There, there, there wouldn't be boys and girls who grow up living without a mom and a dad. There, there wouldn't be so much mistrust and so much infidelity. There wouldn't be so many broken hearts. The need for counseling would go way, way, way down. What, what if, and we're just going to say this as like a, a people thing, not, like, not a Christian thing. We'll get there in a little bit. But just as a human thing, in our human experience, regardless of what you believe about God, what if you got this right? How would this change everything you do? Some of you probably grew up suffering from from something that happened where where your parents didn't have guardrails in this area. And maybe a marriage fell apart or relationships got twisted and, and, and got really cutting and divisive and hurting. What would it change in your life if your parents got this right? Now, if you have children, how would it change their life if you got this right? You see, there has never been a greater potential to have more change than for us to protect and safeguard and kind of guardrail our marriage and our relationship. So we're going to dive in. (coughs) The interesting thing about this is God has a lot to say about this. And about 2,000 years ago, we're going to look back about 2,000 years, a man named the Apostle Paul, we talk a lot about Paul, he's kind of traveled around the Mediterranean basin planting all those churches. He writes to, to this, this group of people about this very idea, about setting up guardrails. And my guess is, as we kind of get into this, what we'll see is he probably taught them this when he was with them. That he was with them, he taught them a lot of things. He taught about the gospel and about Jesus. And then he taught about marriage and about sex and how to protect yourself. 
And then he leaves and he, and he writes him a letter again, almost to say, this is so important. I want to remind you so you don't forget. Like maybe somebody stepped out when I was talking about this or somebody showed up late like they often do to church services <clears throat> and you missed this part of the message. But this is so important. I want to remind you again. So I'm going to write it a second time so that you don't lose sight, so that you don't forget what I'm talking about. And he writes this to, to the group of Christians in Corinth. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, and you've heard this verse before we've covered this. Flee, flee from sexual immorality. Or, or in other words, this is what every husband wants his wife to do. This is what every wife wants her husband to do. This is what we want our, our, our children to do, right? This is what every dad wants his daughter to do. Flee, run away, get away from sexual morality. Wait, like, like wait as long as you possibly can. Wait till you're married, like, like run away from it. This is what we wanted, want them to do. When it really comes up to it, we want our, our, our wives or our potential wives to run away, to flee from other sexual immorality so that they're, they're with us. We want our husbands to flee from all that temptation and, and kind of be set apart for us. This is what everyone wants. We don't kind of argue with this logic, but this is exactly the opposite of what culture kind of baits us towards. Culture doesn't encourage us to flee from sexual immorality. It almost encourages us to flirt with it. Just, just dance on that line a little bit. Just tap your toe in. Just, just go a little further. You don't have to run away. Just, just flirt with it just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And then you cross that line. And they grill you and they chastise you and they condemn you. See, Paul saying 2,000 years ago, and here's this, this amazing thing. 2,000 years ago, he even knew this and he even understood it and he got it right. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't flirt with the line. Don't dance on the line. Don't get that close to it. Run away from it. And, and if you're not, not a Christian, you may have this idea, well, you know, you're just approved, like all Christians are against sex. The truth is, we're not. We actually believe that God created sex. I know that's like a weird thought, isn't it? That at some point in, in human history, there was no sex, and then God looked down on humanity, or we believe he looked down on, on Adam, the first man, and he said, you know what? I got a great idea. <laughs> and all the angels are kind of thinking like, what are you going to do, God? You're not going to get it. <laughs> it's going to be good. It's going to be really good, and it's going to change everything. I mean, I don't know how that worked. It's a little odd to think about, but we believe that, that sex is that good, that, that God looked down and he saw that we were missing something and said, I'm going to add something great for them. I'm going to make them in such a way that this will capture them. We love sex. We believe that God created sex for us. So we're not being prudish about it. We're not kind of running away from it. We're just saying, should it have some guardrails? Should it have some guidelines so that maybe it doesn't get taken advantage of? So maybe boys don't always have to be boys and girls don't have to be treated like garbage. Maybe there's room for some guardrails when it comes to sex. So here's what Paul says. He goes on, flee from sexual immorality, all other sins. And now Paul does something really unique. He puts sexual sin, and I'll define that in a few minutes. He puts it in its own category. <clears throat> He's saying there's all these other sins. There, there's, there's piles of sins that we could talk about. But, but when it comes to sin, when it comes to sexual sin, it's in its own category. It, it's kind of separate. It's kind of more. It's kind of bigger. It, it's a little bit heavier than, than anything else you might have think of. You see, because we know when people step over that line, the, the damage is done, right? The, the hurt's been done. And, and it's not that you don't receive forgiveness from sexual sin. It's not like this is the unforgivable sin. It's that when it happens, the damage is done, 
but the consequences are ongoing. You see, you can recover from, from like some kind of financial blunder. You can recover from stepping over that line or that guardrail financially. You can recover from stepping over that guardrail maybe professionally. You can recover from stepping over that guardrail maybe with a friend. But when it comes to, to sexual things and you step over that guardrail, there's forgiveness and grace abounds, but the consequences are ongoing. And we've seen that and we've read about that. And my guess is you probably know one or two or maybe even a few people who've crossed that line and who continue to live with the consequences of that action. So he's saying, you see, sexual sin, it's more than what you think it is. Yes, it's fun. Yes, it's good. Yes, God gave it to us and we love it. But if you're not careful, it'll lead you to a place where it's more damaging than any other sin you could do. It'll lead you to a place where maybe perhaps you don't want to be because sexual sin will make you a liar, and it'll make you a secret keeper. Because all the other sins we have, we don't mind talking about. You know, you go on a date, and you, you, know, eh, you know, when I was like 20 or 22 or 23, I, I got a DUI. It was pretty stupid. You know, when I was like 25, I had to file bankruptcy. That, that was pretty stupid, I know. But when it comes to our sexual past and to maybe our, our sexual misgivings, we're not as honest about that, are we? And I, I don't know that I want to. I don't know that I want to tell you what I what I did. I don't know that I want to be honest about it because I'm not sure how you're going to take it, and I'm not sure how you're going to look at me. So we tend to hold on to it. And in my career, and talking with with a lot of couples, <clears throat> I've seen so many marriages and so many relationships broken apart because someone wasn't honest with their spouse about all of their misgivings about their past. Because none of us want to. No one wants to talk about it. Yeah, well, here's what I did. You see, sexual sin more than any other sin, it causes you to keep a secret. And when there's a secret, you've kind of created a lie because you're not honest about it. And then there's, you know, there's mistrust, there's misgivings, there's deceit, and it just begins to spoil and undo the entire relationship. So Paul's saying, above all other sins, no other sin is like a sexual sin. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside of the body. But the person who sins sexually, and we'll define that again in just a few minutes, the person who sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, what does it mean to sin sexually? When we look at the New Testament, the New Testament is kind of when Jesus showed up on the scene and Jesus talked and all his followers kind of wrote down his teachings. When Jesus showed up in the New Testament, sex, sinning sexually kind of took on a, a different definition. Like when we think about sins, we kind of think that God's up in heaven, a little bit of a prude with all these rules and, and you know, he just, he hates all kinds of fun. And he's just keep, keeping like a tally sheet and you live your life and every time you do something wrong, it's an, another mark against you and another mark against you. But what we find in the New Testament is sin kind of takes on this new definition. When, when Jesus talks about sin, he's not always talking about this idea of this holy God who's up in heaven, keeping this like whiteboard of all your mistakes and how many times you've done something wrong. We get this idea that, that sin is really about how I'm treating other people. That when I lie or when I steal or when I hurt or when I dishonor or when I disrespect someone else, it's kind of counted against me. And here, there's, a reason, there's a reason for that. And Jesus begins to explain that there's a reason that when you hurt someone else, God kind of qualifies or quantifies that as a sin. And that's because God created you in his image and God loves you and God loves me. And when I'm doing something against someone else, I'm hurting something that God created in his image. I'm hurting his son. I'm hurting his daughter. And God doesn't like that. 
I mean, you parents, you've heard me say this before and you feel the same way. You and I can be on good terms and you can, you can mistreat me, you can talk bad about me, and I can get through that. But if you hurt my daughter, I might kill you. If you hurt one of my kids, I, I don't care what you do. You can show up every Sunday in worship, you can sit in rows, you can put some offering in the box in the back, but, but if you hurt one of my kids, we're not okay. So when Jesus talks about sin, he's saying, here's what sin is. It's when you mistreat something that God created, a daughter or a son that he created in his image, that he put his likeness on, that he kind of put his stamp on, something that has so much value to God. He says, when you sin, it's because you've hurt or you've lied or you've mistreated or you've dishonored something that God has placed ultimate value on, his children. And he's not okay with that. He's not comfortable with that. Again, you could come and you can sit in rows and you can worship. And we all get that, that idea because that's what kind of Christianity has become. A bunch of people who come and we sit in rows and we'll raise our hand for a song and put, put a few bucks in the offering plate and we're good. I said, you can do all that. But if you mistreat someone I love, if you mistreat my children, I'm not Okay. You see, we kind of live, we, we've lived our lives with, with this, the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is? Do unto others <clears throat> as you would have them do unto you. But as, as Christians, Christ kind of elevated that for us, and it's no longer the golden rule. It's kind of like the platinum rule. And, and the rule is like this. Treat others the way God through Christ has treated me. You're to treat me the way God and Christ has treated you. And how did God do that? What did that cost God? You see, God really isn't squeamish. He's not approved when it comes to these kind of things. He gets it. But he's just not comfortable with you hurting something or someone that he loves so much that he created in his image. Again, it has everything to do with how God views you and how God honors you and how God loves you and how God created you in his image and how God has a purpose for your life. You see, sin took on this whole new kind of meaning, this whole new definition. It went from a very prudish, kind of squeamish, kind of a very intolerant God to a God that loves you so much that he put some very specific guardrails around how we are to behave around each other because we all have so much value in his eyes. Paul says when it comes to sexual sin, this is a category all of its own. When it comes to sexual sin, when, when you mistreat someone sexually, it, this, goes, this goes even above like kind of regular sin because you're not just hurting that person, but you're hurting that, that, that person that that person was going to be in a relationship with. You're hurting you and, and your future intimacy with that person that I, God had designed you to be with, that one person. So when it comes to sexual sin, Paul's saying, it's so much worse because not only are you hurting someone in something that God loves so much that he put his stamp on, but you're offending that relationship and that future relationship and that future intimacy and your kid's relationship. And we've seen it. It, it, it kind of carries down generationally, doesn't it? This marriage breaks up or this marriage has an awful divorce or there was some kind of a, a, abuse and some kind of, kind of sexual issue there that separated this marriage and these kids were affected. And, and it kind of affects how they treat their future spouse and how they raise their children. And that next generation is affected. This has the potential to cause so much damage. So Paul says, yes. This is so much bigger than you think it is. 
And then he kind of asked him a question. He's, he's almost like saying, like, maybe you forgot when I was with you. Maybe you didn't hear this part. Maybe, maybe this kind of skipped your, 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 your mind, your intellect, your knowledge. So he starts the next verse by saying, do you not know? Do you not know? Which is an indication that maybe, maybe perhaps they don't know. Maybe they continue to live this way. Maybe they continue to operate this way because they don't have the knowledge. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to allow you to go on in your ignorance. I'm not going to allow you to continue to live like you don't have this knowledge. I'm going to remind you so that you know forever. Do you not know? And he begins now to address the Christians. If you're not a Christian up until this point, this is like a human thing. We can all agree, no matter where you kind of stand with faith in God, this is wisdom and this applies. But at this point, he's going to talk specifically to Christians. And he says this, do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies are temples? Your bodies are our temples. Every single person's physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God. And now Paul in his brilliance takes this shift away from, from behavior and consequence to identity. Like, don't you know that, that, that when you made things right, when you like, acknowledged that Jesus is your Savior, that when you became part of God's family and He adopted you in, don't you know that your body now has become a temple? And we're thinking, like, what's a temple? No one knows what a temple is. We, like, the only temple I've seen is when I'm on vacation and my parents dragged me to this historical site. Like, I, what's a temple? It's a sacred place. And Paul's saying, yeah, but here's the thing. There are no more sacred places. There's just sacred people. And you're sacred. You're now a sacred place. You are a temple. And God's spirit, his identity, his being, it rests inside you. Kind of clicks now. Kind of makes sense. Why when we're sinning against someone, or when we're sinning, we're hurting someone. We're offending someone. We're lying to someone. We're dishonoring someone. It's because the, the, the presence of God has now made us the sacred place that we all carry that same kind of intrinsic value. That we're all temples filled with the Holy Spirit. That when we decided to accept Jesus' gift of salvation, we became sacred image barriers or carriers, rather. We now carry the image of God in us. <coughs> God's saying this kind of stuff doesn't just happen. You were designed for this. I designed you that way. I designed you to carry my image. I designed you to be an image bearer, to, to carry my spirit so that people would know me when they know you. When they get to know you, they would know more and more of me. I, I made you this way. God's Spirit resides in you. And you know why this is a big deal? Do you know why it's a big deal that God's Spirit resides in us? Because the value of a container is determined by what it contains. Think about it. If you were to steal my wallet, I'm really not as concerned about my wallet as I am about the things in my wallet. If I emptied out my wallet, like if you came up to me with a gun and said, give me your wallet, you can keep everything in it, just give me the wallet. It's like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Take the strap of leather. Go ahead. Have fun. It's not the wallet that has the value. It's what's in the wallet that has the value. The wallet has value because of what's inside it. It's the same way with us. We have value because God placed his image inside of us. Placed his spirit inside of us. A container has value determined by what it contains. You are extraordinarily valuable. So is every single person around you. And every single person you come eyeball to eyeball with, every single person you work with, that person you may not get along with, your neighbor, your friend, 
They are all extraordinarily valuable. You are not your own, Paul says. To which we say, yes, I am. I'm an adult. I can put my hand outside of the vehicle if I want. I got my license. I went to school. I know what I'm doing. I say, no, no, you are not your own. No, I'm pretty sure I'm my own. I moved out. I got an apartment. I'm my own. Paul says, no, you are not your own. You are not your own. You, you remember that? You may have heard this story. I think this happened in, in uh, 20, 2014. A Stratocaster guitar that was like worth $1,800 on the market, sold for $45,000. And we got to ask ourselves, why would anyone pay $45,000 for a guitar that was worth like $1,800? It's because of who owned the guitar. It's because later we find out that Eric Clapton owned the guitar and sold the guitar and signed the guitar and said, this was mine. And it's almost like because of who owned it, that thing had more value. Because somebody owned that thing and signed it and put a stamp on it, that object had more value. And Paul's saying, you are not your own. There's a reason you have so much intrinsic value. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. God purchased you, and now you have even more value because you belong to him, and the owner gets to put the value of it. The owner increases the value of it. And what did that cost God? What price did God have to, to give? Did God have to pay for you? What did it cost God? He who did not even spare his own son, that God would send his own son into the world, Jesus, to die for your sins and come back to life to offer us a way to have a relationship with the Father. You see, you have more value than you have ever known. I don't care what lie someone told you that you're a mistake or you're not worth anything or your life doesn't matter. Whatever lie someone fed into you when you were younger or maybe even now, your boss or your, 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 like somebody who, who, who's not your friend, you want to call him an enemy, says to you, you have extraordinary value because God has placed his image in you. And then God purchased you. You were bought with a price. Therefore, in light of all this, in light of the selfishness of sexual sin, in light of the extraordinary value you have because God placed his spirit in you and God purchased you, in light of the potential you have for intimacy with one person, that incredible relationship, in light of all that, therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's the Christian ethic for sexual behavior. Honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. Honor that body sitting next to you because that body belongs to God. Honor God with your bodies because that is the most valuable thing to your Father in heaven. You and the person next to you and the person next to them and the person you meet at work and the person that cuts you off in traffic tomorrow and that, that barista that serves you a bad cup of coffee that waitress at the restaurant that doesn't get your order right, that bill collector that keeps having to call you about that bill you owe, they are just as valuable and just as extraordinarily important to God as you are. Now, if you're listening to this going like, I don't know about that, Jim. Like, that, that, you know, I don't know about any of this. That's why Paul said, do you not know? You may not have known before this. But now you do. So there's no more excuses. I've kind of robbed your excuse this morning, and I'm not really sorry about it. But when you come into this, 
When, when you begin to realize that, that Paul's instruction to flee immorality, flee sexual immorality, don't flirt with it, but run in the other direction, you realize how much that can save your life. And fleeing immorality requires guardrails. It requires us to place some guardrails in our marriage and in our life. Now, for the next few minutes, here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a few talking points, a few guardrails to apply to your relationship and your marriage. This isn't thus saith the Lord. This isn't found in Scripture. This is advice given from me. If you disagree with them, that's fine. Make your own. But here's a good place to start, to safeguard and protect your marriage. So no matter what, what you kind of feel by the end of this, you have no more excuse. It's time to have guardrails. It's time to flee sexual immorality. The first one I'm going to give you is this. Talk about it. If you're married or if you're engaged, if you're kind of working towards that, that important relationship, you need to talk about it. You need to know what, what's kind of acceptable and permissible for my relationship. Like, sh should I be meeting with other people alone, especially people of the opposite sex or maybe somebody that I might be attracted to? Where do we stand? Where do you stand? How do we make sure that our marriage is protected so that if this ever comes up later on, I know where you stand and I know how to avoid that thing so that I can protect our relationship. Where do you stand? A good place to start, and we kind of talked about this in week one, for, for me and, and my family, something that I've kind of instituted as, we don't have a lot of rules as a church staff, but this is one rule we carry pretty seriously, is that we don't meet or travel with a member of the opposite sex alone. We don't. It's, it's, we talked about it week one, that's kind of the Billy Graham rule. He was known in the 60s as a very famous preacher, and that was his rule that he came out with, that he never traveled or ate with a member of the opposite sex unless it was his wife or his children, maybe his grandchildren at that point. Uh, he never did any of that to protect himself, to safeguard his marriage. And he got a lot of criticism for that. But you know what? He died a happily married man. See, I, I've talked to so many people who live with this rule, and, and, and not just husbands, but even wives who live with this rule. And, and yes, it, it requires some adjusting. It requires some things that you have to give up on because you're not going to do what everyone else does. But it protects your marriage. And it safeguards you so that you can be in that one intimate relationship forever. And I know what some of you might be saying, but, but isn't, this, <clears throat> isn't that a little bigoted? Like that's hard to do, especially <clears throat> if you're a woman with a professional career. How am I supposed to grow in my, in my career? How am I supposed to kind of take that next step? How, how, how can I move on from this? I heard a story. Excuse me. <clears throat> I heard a story of a lady who went from a for-profit company to a non-profit company. And all the non-profit company guys had this rule. They wouldn't, they wouldn't meet or talk or have meals with anyone of the opposite sex. So this lady joined a company and she couldn't grow. She couldn't advance at all. That's a bad application of that rule. In your work experience, whatever you have to do to kind of apply it, you talk with your husband, you talk with your wife, with your fiance, with your girlfriend, if you're pursuing a serious relationship or your boyfriend, you find out where are you guys comfortable? How does that work in your life? You make that a rule for you. It's for you. This isn't one applies to all. A guardrail is something you decide for your life. How do you live? How will you operate? Talk about it. Know where each other stands. Don't be ignorant because in the end, if you are, it'll bite you. And it'll butt you hard. Talk about it. The next thing, tell them about it. If, if, you're kind of, <clears throat> if you kind of know um, that there's somebody at the work who's maybe one of those, those problematic people, you, maybe a problematic for you because you find yourself kind of, kind of leaning towards um, wanting to see them more. You know, you show up for work, and instead of going right, you go left every time because he's always there to the left. 
Or she's like that person you always want to see when you go to get coffee. You kind of wait till they, they kind of make their way to the coffee and you go over and get coffee. You know, they're just kind of that, that problematic person that you kind of feel yourself maybe being a little drawn towards, maybe kind of enticing or welcoming the idea a little bit. You need to talk to your spouse about it. You need to be honest with them and say, hey, I, I'm not comfortable with this. I, 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 there's something going on here that, that might lead me in a way that's going to take me to a place I don't like to go. And to avoid that wreck, to avoid that accident, I need to be honest and I need to tell you about it. I, I need to talk with you about this. Tell you that here might be a struggle for me. That here might be something I'm not that comfortable with. That here might be something that, that I'm not sure, but I have a feeling it could lead me to a place I don't want to go. And we need to put a guardrail there to, to, to course correct and keep me on track so that I can drive safely between those guardrails and have that marriage we all want. You need to tell them about it. You need to be honest about it. And the last thing, and this is if your heart's kind of gone out of bounds and it's gone from maybe that little bit of interest to, maybe, to unknowing that's a little bit of a problematic person to maybe feeling like your heart's already attached itself to somebody else, you need to tell somebody about it. And I say somebody because you may not feel very comfortable opening up to your wife right away. You haven't done anything wrong. You haven't, you haven't like, committed a sin and broken trust, but you feel your heart kind of separating from where it is and going to where it shouldn't be. You need to tell somebody. You need to have a friend. You need to have somebody you trust. Somebody who can be honest with you. Somebody who can tell you to stop being an idiot and get back on track. You need to be honest with somebody. And if you can't be that kind of honest with your spouse, be that kind of honest with someone else. And course correct before you do have to have that conversation with your spouse. Because all of us want to avoid that. So let's make some corrections now. And another thing, and this kind of goes without saying, but I have to say it anyway, avoid social media with people like you know you shouldn't be talking with. And I, I know that everyone always says, well, how do I know I shouldn't be talking with them? Let's be honest. We're all adults. You know. You know. You know the people you shouldn't be talking with. And social media is so bad in this way, it's almost worse than kind of sitting down and having coffee or going out to eat with somebody of the opposite sex you might be attracted to. Like, like it's even worse because this is all done in secrecy and it's all done privately and you've never met and, and you just kind of get the highlight reel of someone's life and everything looks good and then you begin to build it up and begin to fantasize it and, and, and dramatize it so that by the time you do meet and you do come face to face, it, it's like built up to be this thing that's so much bigger than it is. And disaster always follows. We've seen it. I've seen it. You've seen it. We know what it's like when people begin to walk this path and lead them into dangerous areas where they don't have guardrails and they kind of go down into that ditch or drive off that cliff. We see it time and time and time again. Guard your life. Guard your marriage. Protect what should be the most important relationship you will ever have. Set up those guardrails. Don't be the statistic. Don't pass this on to your kids and your kids' kids. Change it today. The guardrail gives you the power to do that. The guardrail gives you the ability to protect the thing that you hold most dear. The point of a guardrail is to light up our conscience before we hurt others or ourselves. The point of all this is to, so that you have something that triggers your conscience and lights up before you go too far and before you make your mistake. 
Talk to your spouse. Set up the guardrails. Begin to like, be honest when you feel yourself maybe leaning a little closer to that guardrail than you want to be. And have that relationship where you can be completely honest with someone about what's going on in your heart. And I know what you're thinking. Jim, this sounds really extreme. Like, this sounds really, really extreme. Dangerous times call for extreme measures. Say, really, are we really living in dangerous times? Again, I'll go back to this question. Is there anything in your life, married couples, is there anything in your life that leads or promotes to having a, a, a safe, faithful, loyal marriage? Anything. TV? No. M- movies? No. Magazines? Absolutely not. Books? I mean, unless you're reading like a marriage book? No. Singles, is there anything that's leading you to have a faithful monogamous relationship? Anything in culture, any of the music you listen to, any of the movies you watch, any of that that show you're binging on Netflix, is there anything that's leading you to have that faithful, loyal relationship aside from going to church? No. That's why we did the series like the single series. That's why we're doing a series like we're doing now. Because the truth is, you're living in very dangerous times. And it's time for you to take some extreme measures to safeguard and protect the thing that you hold most dear. Yes, it sounds extreme. But we are living in dangerous times. So the choice is yours. Are you going to flee or are you going to flirt? Are you going to run in the other direction like we all want our spouse to do and our kids to do and we wanted our parents to do? Or are we going to continue to flirt on that line? How close can I get? What's what's another thing I can do? Flee. Fleeing honors God. Fleeing honors you. It honors your kids. It honors your future kids. It honors your, your future kids' kids. Fleeing honors God and it honors others. We just set up some guardrails that ding our conscience while you're still in the safety zone before you ever drive off that edge. You won't be applauded now, but you will be applauded later. Culture won't celebrate you now, but it'll celebrate you when you get to the end of your life with a happy marriage and kids who love you, knowing that you've been faithful and that you've honored your spouse forever, knowing that you could get to the point in your marriage where you could say this, I am forever yours, faithfully. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, I know sometimes this can be, feel so intense, and it can, it can even rub us the wrong way and make us feel like, I don't know about all this. But God, Paul was right. We do need to know. We need to flee. We need to run in the other direction from sexual immorality. And I help, hope for every person here, God, that they could apply some of this wisdom to their life, whatever it looks like, however they have to adjust it to make their life and their marriage work. I pray for every person here, God, that the excuses would be gone and that wisdom for guardrails would come in. And I pray you'd give them the wisdom of how to apply it and the courage to do so even when it's challenging. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.